When it comes to old-school journalism and investigative reporting, they don't make them like John Pilger anymore. They bombed Cambodia, a neutral country, back to the Stone Age. The Australian journalist, author and documentary filmmaker has dedicated his life to the pursuit of truth. It's called civil disobedience. Thank you. And in a business overtaken by spin, misleading narratives and government cover-ups, he remains outspoken and fearless. We must be skeptical of absolutely everything. From the war in Ukraine. Above all, this is a war of propaganda. To the plight of jailed WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. That if Julian goes to the United States, that will be the end of him. He will die. John Pilger discusses it all in the latest episode of Talking Post. John Pilger, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let's get straight to it. Now, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Now, if, if you ask me for my personal opinion, I mean, all war is wrong. All invasions are wrong. But at the same time, John, I, I do remember uh, you, I was pretty critical as well, of this invasion that was not happening. Just the buildup on the Russian side of the border, the buildup on the Ukrainian side, and then weeks and weeks of uh, saying it's never going to happen. But it did. So mm. what happened there? Well, uh, if you see it from the Russian side, without taking the side of Russia, it looks rather different. Uh, there was Russian troops, as you may remember, up in February, massing uh, on the Ukrainian border, and they eventually invaded. That was the news on this side of the border. On the other side of the border, there were 60,000 Ukrainian troops who were massing on the line of contact right across Donbass. Now, Donbass, as far as the Russians are concerned, is, is the last stepping stone. Uh, you're close by Russia. You have a strategic advantage over Russia. Everything in modern Russian history uh, and in not so modern history tells us that the Russians will never uh, tolerate this that they regard this as the threat, and they have much of their history to justify it. History is, in any discussion of geopolitics, history has to be part of one's analysis, even if it's not overt. It has to be understood. It has, there has to be a basic knowledge of it uh, to understand why things are happening uh, or what is likely to happen our ignorance of Russia, like our ignorance of China in the West, allows none of that historical sense of how people see the threat and how political forces see the threat. This is not in any way to, if you like, condone Putin's invasion, but it has to be understood. So I don't think Russia is going to gain from this. Once you unleash war, uh, then... Uh, Literally anything can happen. Is this going to be a decades-long war? Because it seems like the U.S. is determined to defeat Russia in Ukraine itself by arming the Ukrainians, by building a coalition against uh, Russia, etc. And Putin, for whatever reason, may, uh, whether it's a loss of face or whether he's determined to stay the course, I mean, that is going to go on for a long time, right? And at the same time, there's also a distinct uh, danger, a real danger of it escalating to something that nobody wants to see. Yes, you must remember, though, that above all, this is a war of propaganda. And I would think almost nothing one reads 
in the Western press uh, about, about the invasion of Ukraine is to be trusted. Uh, a skepticism, uh, or the skills of skepticism, but I'm not sure the reading public, the watching public, particularly in the United States, possesses. That is crucial now because nothing can be believed. Every day when I scan the media, I, I look at the source, it's Ukrainian intelligence. The, inter the propaganda operation in Ukraine is quite brilliant. Uh, they've managed to uh, invent a chemical warfare attack when there wasn't one. They've managed to, uh, um, to, to, uh, to keep out of the, uh, the Western media the fact that so much of, of Ukraine is infested, if not run by, but infested with, with true extremists, fascists, neo-Nazis, they are called. The United States may be about to fight, you're saying, or to uh, encourage a war in which it plays a leading role in Ukraine. What to remember here is the US doesn't give a damn about Ukraine. Ukraine is simply a pawn in this, but the object as the US Defense Secretary is, and I paraphrase him, is to destroy the Russian Federation. That's been known for a long time. That is probably the most dangerous project in the world today, uh, because the Russians are not going to allow that. When you talk about not trusting anything that you see in the media, um, unfortunately, <laughs> even being a member of the mainstream media myself, I have to agree with you to a great extent there because of the disproportionate coverage in, in this war. It's reached a stage where anything that the Ukrainians do is glorified and anything that the Russians do is vilified to the extent now that you have mainstream Western media celebrating uh, news from Ukraine like dead uh, pictures of uh, dead Russian soldiers being sent back to their mothers. There's almost a a celebratory tone in, in, in the media. And th this begs the question, what happened to empathy? We're not asking for sympathy here, not asking for sympathy for the Russians as an invading force, but empathy for humans, right? For young lives, soldiers who've been sent into war, not by their choice, they follow, it's the military, they follow orders. Well, I've spent my career working in the mainstream and I've covered probably seven, eight, nine shooting wars. I've never seen a, cover a coverage so utterly consumed by a tsunami of jingoism uh, and of manipulative jingoism as this one. And that's why nothing should be trusted. Uh, I say that to people all the time. I said, unless you're going to sit in front of your television and deconstruct what you see, actually take it away with you and and check it and uh, uh, try to verify it as much as you can. And if you can't, to discard it. Well, most people don't have the time to do that. I don't have the time to do it. Uh, therefore, I have to say I ignore it most of the time. There are honourable exceptions. Of course there are. There are very few and far between. I mean, what has happened in my recent lifetime in the mainstream media is that now I'm I'm speaking about I've spent most of my time in the British 
working in the British media, the British press, is that that spaces that were there for journalists who might be called, let's say, mavericks, that is, they made an effort to tell the truth. They went against the grain. Uh, that was tolerated. When I went into Fleet Street in, in London, starting from the 1960s, there were spaces for people like that, and I fill one of them. Those spaces have been closed. Certainly, there is much more media, and there's probably much more opportunity. And yet, the reporting, this is probably the first war in Ukraine reported by social media. <laughs> That's, that doesn't uh, call on the, the highest standards of professionalism. But it does mean that we, at least we have a way to question what we see and hear and read in the mainstream media. The mainstream media is part of a propaganda war. That's not sent, said or meant to be in any way agitprop. I'm speaking against uh, the, uh, the craft that, that, if you like, gave me a home through all my career. But that's the truth. And we must be skeptical. We must be skeptical of absolutely everything. You've just had the Australian election. Uh, you have a new government in power now. Labour is back. What can we expect with the new government, given the track record of the previous one in terms of its foreign policy? Are we, is there going to be some kind of change in its approach to the region, say countries like China? Or is this just uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss? I think you, uh, your expectations and hopes must be kept at a very, very low level. I would think there is nothing to separate, nothing substantial anyway, to separate present Labour government from the last coalition government in terms of foreign policy. I mean, here we've had a good example where, where uh, Anthony Albanese, the new Prime Minister, has just been to Tokyo. Uh, to meet with Biden and, and Modi and others. There he had plenty of opportunity. Even make a token gesture on China, especially as uh, Prime Minister Li and uh, others in the Chinese government had said, in effect, let's try diplomacy. Uh, but instead, he gave the world a lecture about something called Australian values. I don't know what they are. Uh, that's not diplomacy. That's playing uh, as Australia has been doing for too many years, and that is as an echo of the United States. So I wouldn't expect much. One of the documentaries you made some years ago was uh, The Coming War Against China. You're talking about that. <laughs> now, given the latest situation, you have uh, the Quad being set up, uh, uh, the uh, posturing, the US-led uh, coalition against China to contain China, all that's going on. And uh, given this new government, are we, are we still heading towards that collision course as far as the way Australia is going about it with its Western partners, the US-led? Is, is there still a clear and present <coughs> danger of us descending into something that nobody wants to see in the end? I, I, I mean, it's very flattering, I suppose, that Australia should be mentioned in this way, because I don't think it matters a damn what Australia in the end does, it's what the United States does. Australia follows the United States. Australian foreign policy 
its military, its intelligence community, its media, uh, much of its uh, uh, much of its uh, public intellectual life is integrated into the United States. Uh, it's it's often a, uh, a term of an insult to say Australia is the 51st state, but it is. It is what happens in Washington that matters. And in Australia, as in basically in the United Kingdom with various variations, the United States leads. And what they want, usually they get. The fact that China is surrounded by some 40 US bases all the way up from Australia, new bases in Australia, all the way up through uh, the Pacific, across to Asia, up to Korea and Japan and Okinawa, floating in, in bases, all aimed at the industrial heartland of China. That is never mentioned here. It was never mentioned in the election campaign. It's never mentioned in the media. Uh, instead, we have periodic outbursts about uh, China's assertiveness in the South China Sea. So it, you know, there has been a sort of what they like to call now, I hate this term, but a soft war uh, already being waged against China. Uh, that's what we live with day after day. It's extremely dangerous. So let's talk about uh, Julian Assange, uh, basically a political <laughs> prisoner being held uh, uh, on trumped-up charges. You're a good friend of his. You've been in touch with him. Now, we all know the, uh, the political uh, row over uh, Assange's uh, imprisonment and uh, the fate that he's being subjected to. But can you give us an idea from your personal interaction with uh, Julian? Give us, a, give us a sense of what's happening to him as a man now, as a human being. Well, I have it, I have it through his wife and, and and others, I haven't seen him for about 18 months in prison. But uh, uh, I'm always, when I have seen him, I'm, I have been astonished uh, at his resilience. I don't know how the man has kept going, but he has. But at some cost, as we know from evidence in the in the court case, and. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind, as there is no doubt in, in the minds of his loved ones, that if Julian goes to the United States and is effectively dropped in a, in a penal hellhole, that will be the end of him, literally. He will die. Anything is better, of course, than going to the United States. But the torture, and it's not a word I use idly, the torture he's suffered uh, has cost the man terribly. If, if Julian is extradited to the United States, I think it will effectively end real uh, independent investigative journalism. Who will take that risk again? If the United States and other countries, but if the United States mainly, can reach anywhere in the world and take a journalist for writing something or revealing something it doesn't approve of. So one of the most uh, egregious, outrageous aspects, if you will, of, of this uh, case with Julian is that he's an Australian citizen, but Australia has made no effort whatsoever to protect one of its own. 
But uh, yeah. Yeah, the new Australian Prime Minister, is that just lip service? But, but, but he did say that uh, enough is enough, something needs to be done. He said he doesn't agree with what Julian has done, but enough is enough. So uh, is there a chance now that there may be something, that Australia will try to do something? I, I think it goes back to your original question about, about Australia and China. Will they, will, and, and that begs another question, will, will Australia deviate from, uh, from the United States? In my view, no. Uh, Anthony Albanese has said, uh, enough is enough. I think I quote him, this has gone on too long. He doesn't mention the fact the man has committed no crime. Uh, and this is a journalist fighting for his life and for the right of real journalism to publish the truth about governments. Uh, but he said nothing since. Many have appealed to him. Julian's father, John Shipton, has seen him and personally appealed to him. Um, John Shipton has appealed to all the prime ministers that went before that. I appeal to Malcolm Turn Turnbull, the prime minister, two ago, that uh, this was an Australian responsibility. The man is an Australian. Does nationality mean nothing? Well, apparently it means nothing because Australia has not only done nothing, it has colluded with the United States to, uh, to, to keep, keep Julian where he is. John, how do you carry on how do you not feel like giving up because it's just hopeless? Uh, I'm not just talking about uh, Julian, but in terms of the kind of journalism that you do, uh, you, I, I see people attacking you. I, I see people calling you a pink or commie, that kind of stuff. How, how do you carry on? Well, that's an old one, a commie, my yeah. goodness. Uh, the great journalist James Cameron once said, if they call you a communist, especially a communist dupe, then you'll know you're doing something right. <laughs> you're succeeding. Um, but uh, look, I could ask you the same question. Ask any good journalist how they carry on because they believe in journalism. I feel like giving up a lot of times. I feel like you giving feel up a lot of times. Well, <laughs> um, sometimes I felt like giving up, but I have such a passion for journalism. It's addictive and it has been addictive all my life. Uh, and I believe it is so important uh, and when you're faced with uh, of the day after day examples of the worst kind of journalism that isn't really journalism at all, then I think that's only further encouragement uh, to keep going. People, we have a responsibility, journalists, to our audience. We have a responsibility to give them as much of the truth as we possibly can. We can very seldom give them the whole truth. It doesn't happen, but we have that responsibility. And I've had enough response from audiences, my audience, television, newspapers, to understand that it works. It's appreciated. It's understood. We'll have to uh, bring it to an end now. It's been a fascinating chat, but I do want to uh, continue in that vein, which is, uh, for the benefit of our viewers, uh, when I was a young journalist, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you were one of the people who inspired me. You've inspired many young journalists, and I want to tell you that all of us appreciate it a lot. You're one of the last great journalists of our times, the one of the last great 
truth seekers. And I wish you many more years of that. Uh, people like you make the world a better place by speaking the truth without fear and favor. And long may that continue. Thank you so uh, much. It's very nice to hear. Thank you, Yonder. And my warm regards to you and to your program. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks.